for our reading this morning, turn please to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In Sunday school, we dealt with the subject of the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, looking at the 11 recorded events in the New Testament, giving testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and was seen of many. This morning, we'd like to go ahead and address the subject of the purpose of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The entire chapter deals with the resurrection. As to the concerns that Paul was addressing, I'll just read these verses 12 through 23. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and ye are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be, the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now if Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, By man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. The first 11 verses of this chapter, Paul reminded the believers at Corinth that in believing in the resurrection, they would be saved, or should they not believe, they would not be saved. But there were a number of philosophies that were prevalent in that day concerning what happens to human beings after death. And there are likely a number of folks in that congregation who struggled with the concept of the bodily resurrection of the believer. Some of those religions taught such as soul sleep, the body dies and disintegrates while the soul or spirit rests. To them, the resurrected body was burdensome. For those who followed the teachings of materialism, is that the utter extinction or total annihilation of the body, nothing physical, human, spiritual, or otherwise survives after death. To them, the resurrected body was unimaginable. Those who followed reincarnation believe the soul of the spirit is continually recycled one life after another. To them, the resurrected body was foolish. You have those who followed the teachings of absorption, the belief that the spirit, or at least part of the spirit, returns back to its source and is absorbed back into the ultimate divine mind or being. So to them, the resurrected body was unacceptable. And then you had those who held to dualism. This is generally attributed to Plato. It's the belief that everything spiritual is intrinsically good and everything physical is intrinsically evil. 
Death was an escape from the tomb of the flesh. And the last thing a Grecian dualist wanted was to take into the afterlife a body. So to them, the resurrected body was repugnant. So when Paul preached, he was trying to help these folks understand the truth of the resurrection. Well, when Paul wrote this particular letter to the Corinthian believers, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of uncertainty. And by the way, that was common in his day, for we see recorded in Acts chapter 17, when Paul preached at the Oropagus in Athens about the resurrection, he found the Athenian philosophers believed in the immortality of the soul, but strongly opposed a bodily resurrection. Acts 17.32, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So it's feasible, as Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian believers, that many of them just did not understand this concept of the bodily resurrection. So in verses 13 through 19, the apostle demonstrates the resurrection is not only possible, but is also essential to the Christian faith. You understand that in order for someone to be saved, they must believe in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in these verses, 13 through 19, gives four theological and three personal disasters or consequences if there were no resurrection. I'll just mention those briefly. Verse 13, Christ would not be raised. Verse 14, preaching the gospel would be meaningless. And again, in verse 14, faith in Christ would be worthless. Verse 15, we find all witnesses to and all preachers of the resurrection would be liars. Verse 16, all men would still be in their sin. Verse 18, all former believers would have eternally perished. And in verse 19, Christians would be the most miserable people on the earth. But then in verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead. See, he settled the question of did he? And that's what we addressed in Sunday school, looking at the proof of the resurrection. But now still looming in the minds of these people is Why? Why was it necessary for him to rise from the grave? Why not just go directly to heaven? Why bother returning to earth? And we understand. When Christ rose from the grave, he spent 40 days walking upon the earth, making himself known even more to his disciples and followers, and then ascended into heaven, and now sitteth at the right hand of God the Father on high. But why did he do that? Why didn't he just go directly to heaven? Well, Paul addresses this matter of why. The resurrection taught us something. We see in the resurrection the fact that he died to pay for the penalty of mankind's sin, but he was raised from the dead to prove he was able to do so. You see, for most, the message of his sacrificial atonement wouldn't be enough. They had to have more. There had to be the miracle of a resurrected body. We're going to look at three of our Lord's statements and see his approach to this matter of his coming resurrection during his earthly ministry. So if you would turn to John chapter 2, we're going to start out looking at this subject. Christ arose to establish the truth of his word. 
John chapter 2, verses 19, 20, and 21. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. They were thinking of Herod's temple. They were thinking of the temple there on the mount in Jerusalem, where people would come for the purpose of offering sacrifices and things like that. They were thinking of this physical structure, this building, but Jesus was speaking of his body. You see, the importance of Christ's resurrection can be seen in the fact he rose from the dead. Then we find that because he did, the gospel message is true. If he didn't raise from the grave, the gospel message would be false. His resurrection from the dead gives verifiable, tangible, indisputable, believable proof that he is the Son of God and his word is true. Thus making it clear that all of his claims were dependable. Someone has said, because he did what he said he would do, we know he is who he said he is. The fact of the matter is, Jesus made some pretty bold, brash, and unbelievable claims during his earthly ministry. But he backed them up by proving they were true. And as a result, he assured us his sacrifice was accepted and our justification was secured. How do we know that? Romans 4.25 who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. You see, Jesus Christ's resurrection proved beyond all shadow of doubt that he is God and his word is true. John chapter 2 verse 19, Jesus declared, as again, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. No ambiguity, no uncertainty, no going back and forth, no room for loopholes. He put it all on the line right there saying, this is what's going to happen. If it didn't happen, he'd be a liar. But thank God it did, for Jesus Christ rose the third day from the grave and proved he could keep his word and that his word was true. He verified his authority to make these claims. His resurrection proved beyond all shadow of a doubt that he is God and his word is true. Romans 1.4, Paul preached this when he said, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus made it clear. He had the power. He had the authority to fulfill his word. For in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, he declared, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Yes, Jesus Christ demonstrated his authority, demonstrated the truth of his claims by the resurrection. So, to answer the question that was posed just a moment ago, why not go straight to heaven? Why bother raising from the dead and coming back to earth? As proof, because we as people, we need something to help us believe. It's one thing to take a person at their word, but it's another thing to see them demonstrate they followed through with that promise. Edward R. Murrow, 
said to be persuasive, we must be believable. To be believable, we must be credible. And to be credible, we must be truthful. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Someone else has said, trust must enter the mind before it can enter the heart. Jesus Christ's resurrection made it possible for people to see the risen Savior and thus with their mind accept this truth and then gladly receive it into their heart. Yes, he rose from the grave to demonstrate the truth of his word. Not only that, turn to John chapter 14 if you would. And we'll see Christ arose to establish the joy of his comfort. John chapter 14, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. This passage you recognize, I'm sure, is a passage dealing with our Lord, offering comfort and assurance to his disciples. Verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. And of course, we realize this is where the discourse between him and Thomas picked up and Jesus later on declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But through this, we all know Jesus Christ made certain claims in his lifetime. Jesus made certain promises to his followers. And I'm sure you're aware of the fact that a promise is meaningless if there's neither intent nor the ability to fulfill it. We've all heard of the phrase, empty promises. Words without any assurance. Commitments without any intent to follow through with that. Jesus Christ rose from the grave to assure his followers the promises he made were not empty. They were not meaningless. They were not vain. So when he said to him in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled, he said, be assured, I will comfort you as no other can. And him, his being raised from the dead demonstrated he was able to keep the most difficult of promises. I mean, which would be harder? To say, I'm going to do something nice for you today or I'm going to raise myself from the dead. I mean, for us, it's just obviously there's, there's no comparison. We couldn't do the latter. But Jesus Christ could. And in doing so, he demonstrated he could fulfill the most difficult of promises, the most outlandish of claims. So certainly he could handle the simple ones, the easy ones that he made. So this, again, verifies the truth of his word, but also grants comfort to us on a personal level. You see, when he rose from the dead, he validated every promise that he ever made. If he couldn't fulfill the difficult ones, he couldn't handle the simple ones. But because he took care of the most difficult first, we know all the others will fall into place. John chapter 6, Jesus said, All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, which hath sent me, 
that of all which he hath given me, I shall lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at that day. It's one thing to claim that he would raise himself, which he did. But oh, it makes it a whole lot more personal when he says, I'll raise you up too. What a comfort to know. We need not fear death. Need not fear what's ahead. We see that saints of old serve the Lord time and time through difficulties and struggles and heartaches and trials. And they did so with the promise that one day Jesus was going to bring him home unto himself. How could he say that? John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Yes, he promised power, eternal life, a heavenly home, rewards, joy immeasurable. He promised his eternal presence. What a blessing. What an encouragement for someone who's going through life and just facing struggle and trial and problem after another. Beloved, we can rejoice knowing there's coming an end to those problems one day. One day we'll be with Him. We will enter into our rest. He will call us unto Himself and we'll we'll walk the streets of gold. We'll enter past the gates of pearl and we'll stand in His presence and we will see Him, as the songwriter said, face to face. What a joy to know. It's not just a vain, empty promise, but it is a fact that will one day come to pass. Beloved, many today would love to have that joy and assurance that each of us possess. To know for sure when we draw our last breath in this life, we'll take our first in glory. Wow, what a promise. What a joy. Jesus said, I know. You're going to face persecution. So they persecuted me. They'll do so to you. So they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So the world's not your friend. The world will stand in opposition to you. You may have friends and loved ones who will turn against you because of your stand for Christ. But what a joy to know he will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You know, nothing can separate us from the love of God. What a blessing to know. You think about this passage I read here in John six thirty seven. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. I'll let you get there. We'll read it again. John six thirty seven. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Have you ever been so upset, frustrated, angry, or disgusted with someone's conduct that you just said, I never want to see you again? Our Lord will never do that to us. He'll never turn his back on us. He'll never say, I'm done with you. If we're a part of his family, oh, we may disappoint him. We may break his heart. We may grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But we also have the promise that we are always a part of the body of Christ. He's not going to cast us out. He's not going to say, I don't want to see you anymore. He'll never utter the words, I'm done with you. There's coming a day 
when we'll hear him say, welcome home. I hope as we enter the streets of glory, we can do so with joy in our heart, knowing we serve the Lord as best we could in this life, that we might hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But should we come short, he'll still be there with open arms, welcoming us home. What a joy to know. He loves us. He died for us. He rose from the grave, thus paying the penalty for God's wrath. And he offers us comfort today that we in turn might be assured that one day we will be in his presence. Curtis Hudson stated, Absolute dependence upon what God has done equals salvation. Absolute dependence upon what God has said equals assurance. Yes, he said he loves us. He said he cares for us. He said he watch over us and protect us and guide us. And he's also said he will one day welcome us home. D.L. Moody said, The blood of Christ alone makes us safe. The word of God alone makes us sure. Yes, it is God's holy word that brings forth these promises that which we can hold so dear. Another is stated, We have an eternal hope because we have an eternal Savior. Yes, weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. And when that dawn breaks and we enter into the presence of the Lord, what joy it will be. All of that's possible because Jesus rose from the grave. Why didn't he just go right to heaven? To assure us that he will continue to comfort us as he promised he would. For this last thought, John chapter 5, verse 22. We see not only Christ rose to establish the truth of his word, to establish the joy of his comfort, but we also hear in John 5, 22, see Jesus Christ arose to establish the severity of his judgment. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. When Christ rose from the dead, he verified the fact that he was a member of the Godhood and thus claimed his right, his position to stand as the righteous judge of all. The judgment here speaks of the judgment that comes upon people for rejecting Christ. Earlier in the Gospel of John, we read Christ didn't come into the world to condemn the world to judge the world, that's John 7, uh, 3.17. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. That was the purpose for his coming. And thank God he did so. But multitudes have rejected that free gift of salvation. Multitudes have looked at the cross and mocked Jesus just as much as Roman soldiers and Jewish religionists did that day when Christ was crucified. Millions since then have jeered at the thought of eternal life through Jesus Christ. It is those who refuse to accept him as their savior. It is those who refuse to acknowledge their sinners in need of a savior that Jesus speaks of here when he talks of the judgment to come. You see, his purpose in rising from the grave 
and walking among mankind for 40 days and not just going to heaven and bypassing that, but was to demonstrate he is God. And as God has the authority to carry out the task, the duty, the judgment of God. John 5.27 says, And hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. You see, God has appointed a day in which the world will be judged, according to Acts 17.31. In Romans 2.16, he tells us, In that day God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. And we know that day will be a terrible day. When men and women of all ages march before the Lord and he looks in the Lamb's book of life and sees their name is not recorded and declares, depart from me, ye worker of iniquity. I never knew you. To be cast headlong into a lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. That will be a tragic, horrific day. But he will do so in righteousness and holiness and justice. Not out of vengeance and anger, but because God laid out the plan of salvation in his word and said everybody that receives it may freely come. Everybody who rejects it will go into a Christless eternity. In fact, the judgment that comes at the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ will not go unnoticed by mankind. Revelation 6.16 declares, And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Yes, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. But in heaven we recognize him as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world but also who holds all mankind accountable for their sin should they not trust in him. problem today for many is they've heard of the message of Jesus. They've heard of Jesus Christ. They've heard of his message of salvation, but they don't take the time or the effort to find out what that message is, what it means, how it applies to them, how they might receive it. And then there's a whole other crowd that mocks and laughs and jeers and makes fun of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sad thing is they're all headed for the same destiny, a Christless eternity. His judgment will be fair. It will be righteous. It will be in accordance with his word. Again, no vengeance, no looking away to give favor to some No, he will treat everyone alike. You see, the real question that mankind must answer today is what think ye of Jesus Christ? Do you see him as the one who died on the cross for paying the price for the sin of the world? Or do you see him only as a great teacher, prophet, rebel, or martyr? Jesus Christ is the Savior of of all mankind, and whosoever shall call upon him shall be saved. Why did he rise from the grave? To demonstrate he 
is God. And as God has the right and the authority to carry out the judgment of his word upon all the peoples of the world who reject his wondrous gift of salvation. Thus, the resurrection may be rejected by evil hearts of unbelief, but not through lack of credible evidence. There are many infallible proofs, according to Acts chapter 1-3, recorded in Scripture, wherein we can see this great event of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ has been well documented and is undeniable. But why did he rise from the grave? To establish the truth of his word, to establish the joy of his comfort, and to establish the severity of his judgment. We celebrate today the resurrected Lord for many reasons. These are but three that we see taken from the the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as to why he rose from the grave. The purpose of his resurrection was to demonstrate to mankind there is hope in this life and the life beyond.